everybody. What is going on? You know what time it is. You're listening to Join the Journey podcast with your host, Emma Daughter. Thanks for joining. In today's chapter, Genesis 2, God institutes marriage. Marriage between a man and a woman. But in today's culture, how should believers respond when our culture challenges, if not outright condemns, God's design? Back in 2019, the Pew Research Center conducted a study on attitudes surrounding same-sex marriage. And simply put, as anyone with access to the internet can very clearly see, support for same-sex marriage in our culture has only increased. They found that in 2019, 61% of Americans supported same-sex marriage, and this number had been trending up and to the right for 15 years prior. Now, almost five years later, I can only imagine what the approval rating is today. The Pew Research Center also did a study on preferred pronouns in 2019, again, less than five years ago. And at this time, 39% of Americans had never even heard of someone choosing their preferred pronouns, and 42% of Americans never knew of anyone who'd request they'd use specific pronouns when referring to them, which means back in 2019, less than five years ago, Roughly 82% of Americans were incredibly unfamiliar with this concept. Today, companies require employees to put their preferred pronouns in their email signatures. Throughout the month of June, businesses carry the pride flag with confidence and believers are in the minority if they hold to a biblical worldview. Our culture is consistently changing. And when it comes to God's institution of marriage back in Genesis, it's going to be of increasing importance that we as believers not only deeply understand what we believe, but also know how to lovingly and truthfully engage with a watching world that is, whether they know it or not, desperate for Jesus. Today, I'm going to spend some time in Genesis 1 and 2 as we discuss God's design for men and women and why both the man and the woman woman, are of equal value to God. To begin this discussion, I want to make sure we have a clear theological foundation. When we think about people in general, what do we need to make sure we know? Number one, what is our purpose? To glorify God, to know Him and make Him known. And then number two, creation. In whose image are we made? Or said differently, how did we, with that God-given purpose, get here? We look at Genesis 1 through 3, and we observe the text, asking the who, what, when, where, why questions. Asking what, what's repeated. Well, when God creates people, he declares that they are very good. Not just good, as was the descriptor, descriptor tacked onto everything else in the creation narrative. We also see in Genesis 1 that man is made in the image of God. This means that man or people are like God in represent God. So we look at Genesis 1.26 and we see these ideas of image and likeness connected with our purpose to know God and make him known. We conclude that we as people represent God. We see a similar idea in Genesis 5-3, which says, Adam, he'd lived 130 years, and then he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Think about it. When a man and a woman have a child, the child resembles its parents. 
They look like them, or the kid might grow up and have similar mannerisms or preferences that have been informed or formed by his or her unique relationship to his or her parents. In a similar way, we resemble our Heavenly Father, but we certainly don't do this perfectly, which leads us to the fall. We are certainly less like God than we were before sin entered the picture. Let me say that again. We are certainly less like God than we were before sin entered the picture. Just as God sees, we see, but we don't see perfectly. Just as God hears, we hear, but we don't hear perfectly. Just as God thinks, we think, but we don't think perfectly. How did we get here? We're broken. In Ecclesiastes 7.29, we read, See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. We've sought out many schemes in our character, our intellect. We misunderstand things. We think about them wrongly. Our speech, we misspeak. We use our words in hurtful ways. And our relationships, they are not perfect. There is discord, tension strife. We are certainly less like God than we were before sin entered the picture. But that's why we need Jesus, because once we're saved and received the Holy Spirit, we are made to look more and more like Him, made to be more and more accurate representatives of Him. But that's a conversation for another day. Today, we're talking all about marriage and gender and the creation of man as male and female, the creation of man as male and female as people with two genders shows God's image in harmonious relationships with each other, equality in personhood and importance, and difference in role or authority. So think about personal relationships. The two genders reflect God's image because they reflect the plurality of the Trinity. Two genders, a plural God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one, but yet distinct from one another. Now, someone might ask, but wait, there are three persons in the Trinity and only two genders. On one hand, we can answer the two verse three question by suggesting God is greater, bigger, more, etc., and we are a reflection, not a replica. However, the family can also represent this plurality through kids. In which case, someone might ask, well, what about Paul's thoughts on singleness? And the answer is simple. Paul had spiritual children. That's 1 Corinthians 4, 14. The distinction between genders and the relationship between them is one way we reflect or represent God. And both of those genders are of equal importance. By being equally made in his image, Genesis 1, 26, Both men and women can reflect the character of God. No distinction is given. Amidst a world where our culture wants to tack labels onto a biblical worldview or onto God, the truth of the matter is that a biblical worldview actually ascribes great value to both genders. This equality between genders that we see should lead men and women to give honor to one another. See Proverbs 31.10 or 27 through 28. We also see equality in giftings throughout the scripture. Both men and women can receive the same spiritual gifts. Acts 2, Joel 2. Now, some people might even ask, hey, if Paul's command for head coverings challenges women being equally made in God's image, 
Why would they need to be covered if they're made in God's image? That's 1 Corinthians 11. Now, there's a lot of cultural context we don't have time to get into, but simply put, no. Head coverings or modesty do not deny that women are made in the image of God. Remember, we as people represent God, not just in this physical sense as we so commonly think, but also in our character. And a man cannot rightly reflect God's character if he's lusting after a woman. And the beauty of a woman is something God created. We see that today in Genesis 2, verses 22 through 23. That beauty is not in and of itself a bad thing. We've got to remember, we are certainly less like God than we were before sin entered the picture. As we continue, I want to point out that there is a theological foundation that describes the differences between the two genders. They are distinct. God said, let us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let us create man in our image. They have distinct roles. The Father at creation, He's the one speaking. The Son at redemption, He died on the cross. And the Holy Spirit at Pentecost equips the church. The Spirit didn't die on the cross. Wayne Grudem has a quote. He says, The Father did not come to die for sins, nor did the Holy Spirit. There is a clear distinction, but remember equality. If humans reflect the character of God, then we should expect some differences between male and female. He concludes. There's so much more here we could get into as we think about the ideas that come up in Genesis 1 and 2. They've got so many applications, like roles within the church, divorce, etc. But today, I want to zoom in on the reality as we wrap up that God created two genders intended to relate to one another heterosexually within the context of marriage. These genders are assigned at birth and not something we get to pick. But today— Not everyone believes that to be true, and that should grieve our hearts. This conversation can be really challenging. Bringing up gender identity with friends or family members who live homosexual or transgender lifestyles feels daunting and difficult. How do we communicate truth without compromise in a way that is kind and compassionate? And when it comes to preferred pronouns in particular, John Piper has a helpful article. He writes, In one sense, the names Sally or Jim are culturally arbitrary. We can name our kids whatever we want. We can name them after cars or planet or Greek virtues or grandma. Calling someone by that arbitrary name their parents chose or the one they choose halfway through life may not imply agreement with all that that name was created to signify by the person. However, If the office where we worked, if in that office, I was compelled, he continues, to identify every so-called transgendered person by the pronoun they preferred and all of my emails or conversations, suppose in emails and conversations I had then used, contrary to the instruction I was given, she for he or he for she, I would probably get disciplined in the office. And at that point, I would say to my superiors, I cannot treat he's as she's and she's as he. I cannot buy the whole package. I would be lying to call a he a she. I'm not lying to call a male Sally. That is culturally arbitrary. Weird fluke. But I am lying if I say about a true Jim who wants to be called Sally, she. 
and it would be contrary to my understanding of sexuality to do so and I would start looking for another job. We actually see something similar in Scripture. It's the story of Daniel. Daniel's, look at Daniel chapters 1 through 4. We see Daniel be taken from his home. He's transported to Babylon. He's put in a different culture with beliefs, ideologies, practices, lifestyles that are different to his. And he operates in that culture as an exceptional person until the moment at which he is asked to deny truth. And he stands up for what's right, not with aggression, not with hurtful words. He simply stands up for truth. Piper's article continues. He says, in summary, then, the question is, are we forced, are we forced to call these people a name that they prefer, which I am probably going to submit to in the short run at least, or are we forced to identify them as a different sex than they really are? Naming may have a certain ambiguity and arbitrariness to it, but the language of he and she and the use of bathrooms or locker rooms and hotel rooms does not. And I will draw a line and say, I will not call he, she, and I will not call she, he, Piper concludes. It's pretty practical. It's not biblical, but I think it's a good application of scripture. We don't compromise on truth. We stand up for what's right, but we do it lovingly. We don't go out kicking and screaming, but we do stand firm. So what do we do with this? As we wrap up, here's some final thoughts. Two thoughts, actually. Number one, in Genesis 1 and 2, God makes it abundantly clear that there are two genders and that marriage in his right and trustworthy design is for life, and it's between one biological male and one biological female. Then number two, the truth is what sets us free. In John 8, we read, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word and you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But there's an important thing there. To the Jews who had believed him, the truth will set you free. We cannot expect those who have not yet placed their trust in Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection to live in a way that honors God. It's important we evaluate our expectations. Do I expect my lost coworkers or family members who don't believe in God to live a life that honors God? The most loving thing we can do when it comes to those we know personally is share the gospel. It's to share truth. Because remember, we are certainly less like God than we were before sin entered the picture, and sin separates us from God. God's after our hearts first then our actions and God-honoring actions and beliefs and perspectives come from a heart that's first aligned with the truth of the gospel. So go into those conversations, humble, gentle, filled with the truth of God's word and prayerful. And as always, I'm so glad we're all on this journey reading the Bible together. Hey, we want to thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed the episode. Did you know that you can help support Join the Journey by rating and reviewing this podcast? And if you're willing, we'd love it if you subscribe because the more you download, the easier it will be for new friends to find the podcast.